Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. There's medications that I have been on in the past with short-term memory loss and memory loss. And that is a crazy thing. You know, however old you are, 31 years old, two days later, talk to somebody and saying that meeting was amazing, you know, best brainstorming session ever. We've got to go back and have lunch there. And I literally have no idea what you're referencing. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a one-for-one charitable podcast. Today, we are re-airing an episode I recorded three years ago. It was an interview with my dear friend and journalist, Holly Gordon, and it was the first time I publicly shared that I had been living with bipolar disorder for 24 years and hiding the fact that I had a mental illness that entire time. The reason we are airing this episode today is it is May and it is Mental Health Awareness Month. And as somebody who has a platform that's committed to telling raw and honest and real stories about what it means to be human, I wanted to take this chance to share my story of living with mental illness. So a lot has changed in three years. The day this interview first aired, I could barely breathe or walk out my front door. And a result of airing this interview and the response that followed, I no longer carry close to the amount of shame that I once did. So that has been a real gift. And whether it's your first time listening or perhaps you're listening for the second time, I hope you learned something new, and if you are dealing with your own mental health or helping someone you love on their journey, I hope you feel a little less alone. And now I will go back in time and hand over the mic to my friend, Holly Gordon, interviewing me for the first and only time I was a guest on my own podcast. All right. Are we going to do this? We're going to do this. <laughs> Hi, Kimmy. Hi. Um, I can't believe you've made an audio booth out of my son's room. <laughs> well, I hope that everyone can see how we're all set up here. So I have known you for quite some time and I feel like I am the luckiest person in the world to be able to have the assignment of interviewing you for your own podcast. Are you nervous? <laughs> yes and no. Um, yeah. Hold on a second. Am I nervous? Um, am I nervous? 
I'm not nervous because I feel safe with you. So right now I'm not that nervous, no. You've spent your life documenting other people's stories. So take me back to your childhood and your family. I had a good childhood. I was really social, without question, a little bit of a rebel. I may or may not have been the person that convinced everyone to dance on the tables at the after prom party. (laughs) Everyone on the table. So yeah, I and I loved being in love. I always had a boyfriend. So I, I think I was complex and dynamic in that way. And if you could think about summing up like your high school experience, um, did would you say it was fun with pain or pain with fun? Um pain with fun. That's a great question. I certainly had a lot of highs and lows. I felt very deeply. So anything, rejection, perceived rejection, heartbreak, all of that would crush me. So yeah, I mean, if I look back at my high school diaries, there were lots of dark days, but there was also, you know, a lot of joy and great friendships. I ended up going to Boulder and graduating from there, which I think was a great fit for me. So. Uh, you're graduating from Boulder, UC Boulder, and you're deciding what to do. So what is going through the head of Kimmy Gulp? I actually decided what I wanted to do at a very young age. I'm not sure exactly when it was, but I always knew that I wanted to tell stories and tell stories about real people. So I was a journalism major at Boulder and probably about three or four weeks before graduation, my professor, Vicky Sama, who I loved, was one of the founding producers at CNN, and she was now a professor. So she ran uh, into another class I was in and said, I got a call from CNN in Atlanta. There is a hostage situation um, outside of Denver. It's a big story. They're on the plane coming out, but they asked me to go. Will you come with me? And I said, yes. So An hour plus later, we arrived at what would be Columbine. So I ended up staying there for two weeks. We were, when Vicky and I arrived, we were on the lawn with the families waiting to get information. It was still all happening. So that was the very first news story that I ever covered. Um, And I became an intern. So um, for CNN. For CNN. So I was an intern, stayed with him for two weeks um, at Columbine. And when I left, they said, you worked really hard. You did a good job. Um, We're going to try and get you uh, an internship, uh, sort of a desk assistant job in our Washington bureau. And so I moved to D.C., really excited about this job with CNN, went in, met with the guy, and he said, I don't know what they were talking about. We don't (laughs) have a job for you. (laughs) So there I was in D.C., But Graham was there. Uh, So I ended up on Capitol Hill. I had no interest in politics and another internship. And I would take my resume and coffee a few times a week out to all the cameramen who were, you know, gathered on on the Senate steps, steps of the Senate home. And eventually one of them said, fine, I will um, take your resume. I mean, they took it to the NBC Washington Bureau, which was um, one of the hubs of Today Show and Nightly News and Meet the Press. And so I got a job working overnights there. So it really started with that Columbine experience. And then I landed in NBC. So you're still new to the business. It's sort of fake it till you make it 
Do you remember some of your sort of early times at NBC? Um, totally fake it till you make it. Yeah. I mean, I worked the 4am shift. There was a lot of like fixing the fax machine. Yes. I mean, a lot of high maintenance correspondence <laughs> to tend to. So yeah, it was, it was interesting. And then I, um, it was, you know, in hindsight, exciting to be in a newsroom with all that activity and, and sort of watching things unfold around you. Um, and Washington was certainly an interesting place to be with a lot that was happening. So I was eventually promoted to a researcher, I think making less than I did as a desk assistant because <laughs> the union. And I was assigned to a correspondent, Bob Hager. I was working for Bob and our beat was transportation. And the morning of 9-11, um, I had just gotten back from my honeymoon and Graham ran into the shower and said, NBC's called like 10 times, you need to get into the office immediately. So by the time I got there, Bob had left. He was headed to the Pentagon. And everybody at that moment, your job was elevated 10x because it was all hands on deck in a way that was unexplainable. There was really no way to manage the amount of information that was coming in. So I was put on the live call with all journalists with the FAA. And I was responsible for reporting from that call, which was a very important conference call to be on because Bob couldn't do it. Um, and I knew at the time the name of the um, New York Times reporter who was the best sort of in print. And so everyone would identify themselves. So when he asked a question and got an answer, that was my sort of cue that, that to listen to. And so they had said in the newsroom, if you have something that needs to be reported, stand on your desk. And the on the conference call, they say there's been a national ground stop. All these transportation people say, what's a national ground stop? They say every plane in this country will be grounded and there will be no incoming flights. And so I stand on my desk and I scream out to the newsroom and it would go to air. And that is how things rolled. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So completely defining moment in my career without question. So after NBC, at some point you left and you went to? Good Morning America. Where we met. Yeah. And we first met at Booker's uh -huh. uh, in Eagle, Colorado, uh, chasing that assault allegation against the national basketball star, Kobe Bryant. Correct. We met over fondue. We met over fondue with high school students who were friends of the accuser. Yes. Um, because we were both bookers for Good Morning America. Correct. So I think that everyone needs to know what a booker is. So a booker is, if you think about television and the amount of interviews on a daily basis, if you watch the morning shows or nightly news, and all those interviews have to be negotiated and negotiated quickly. And so a booker's job is to fly into the heart of the story very quickly, gain access to that person, maybe their lawyer, their publicist, their family, and sort of convince them, if you will, that the smart safe, best place to tell the story is with your network and with your anchor. And it becomes highly competitive, if you can imagine. At that time, it was, you know, Diane Sawyer and Barbara Walters and Katie Couric and Larry King, and everybody is sending in their teams. So you and I were part of that, um, part of that team for ABC. You were always on a plane somewhere to some story. I was a road warrior. 
And what quickly happened from covering sort of hard news and politics at Nightly News in Washington, I was working for Good Morning America. And what was rating and rating very well was celebrity trials and murder trials. And I found myself in a lot of jails and a lot of meetings and negotiations with inmates. So that was interesting. And, and, um, I, there was a lot of parts I loved about Good Morning America. First and foremost, the people really loved the people. But it was the first time I thought about cost benefit in my life. And I didn't believe, I didn't believe that the stories I was telling were making a difference. Give me a sense of some of the stories you were covering at that time. I was covering Scott Peterson, Natalie Holloway, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jackson, and on and on. And what I realized is it required a ton of travel, ton of time away from home, ton of energy, emotionally, intellectually, and there was a cost in that. And if the benefit was going to be that I'm telling stories that I really believe in and I believe will make people think differently or inspire people or educate people. But I realized I didn't believe in the stories and the cost was too high. And that was why eventually I walked away. Yeah, I think it's hard for somebody who doesn't work inside the business to understand how much goes on behind the scenes. It's a brutal toll. It takes a brutal toll. Yeah, it completely takes a toll on you. It's, I was on the West Coast and so Good Morning America is live at 7 a.m. So we were going live at 4 a.m., which meant we were there at 2.30 to set up and work with the crews, camera crews. And and then I would go home and sleep. And, you know, by 9.30, 10, the New York desk is calling me saying, you need to be at the press conference. We need you to go meet with this person. So it was relentless. At a certain point, you went and worked for the Oprah Winfrey show. Yeah. I mean, without question, my experience at Oprah was most defined by a question I was asked. And for the first time as a producer and journalist, I was asked, what is your intention in telling this story? So before you pitched a story or a guest, you had to think through your intention and what did you want people to experience? And that to me was just mind-blowing that I had for years been producing and telling stories and no one had ever shared that wisdom with me. So um, that was my biggest takeaway. But I that job is sexy and glossy on the outside, of course. And I'll tell you a funny story, but it's relentless and grueling, driven by perfectionism, nonstop. I used to sleep with my Blackberry under my pillow when I had that job. No, I'm not kidding. That is insane. Yes. I was pregnant sleeping with a Blackberry under my pillow. And the last part, uh, you produced a movie. So can you tell us a little bit about the movie? Um, yeah. I, one of my best friends and college roommate, Michelle, married a guy named Steve Gleason. And Steve was an NFL football player for the New Orleans Saints and totally unconventional, like long hair and played the acoustic guitar and super hot and small for an NFL football player. Really, really cool. So they get married and at 34, he's diagnosed with ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease, and he's given two to five years to live. Four weeks later, they find out they're having a baby. So Steve being really creative, which he was, began documenting himself 
So he was documenting life lessons for their unborn son and how to skip a rock and how to ask a girl out and how to revere your grandmother and how to watch a sunset and also documenting the deterioration of his body. So eventually two young film uh, students and aspiring filmmakers, and a lot of our listeners will know this story if you listen to the podcast or if you've seen the film, but they move in and document every aspect of their life. I mean, every aspect of their life. So it creates this body of footage and being a producer and journalist, I know what what great footage is. And I'd never seen something that intimate and and something of that scale. And they wanted to make a film. And I knew that I had the skill set to help make that happen. So with a group of friends, we started a production company named after their son, Rivers. So we started Dear Rivers Production. And we teamed with other really talented producers and a director in L.A., And we made a feature film, documentary film called Gleason, which um, we ultimately sold at Sundance. And without question, it is the thing that I am most proud of professionally. So I'm just going to jump right into this next chapter. So you've had this high-flying career traveling around the country, reporting on major news stories and interviewing celebrities. And from the outside... You look like a super high achiever with a happy family and an enviable life. And yet all through this, you're hiding a secret. Take me back to that time. So when I was 19 years old, I was diagnosed with bipolar. And the circumstances of that summer, not diagnosis. So my parents had always had this dream of taking their girls to Africa. And we went as a family to Africa, which really was this trip of a lifetime, experience of a lifetime. And the flight back home to college, to Boulder, was it was somewhere around 36 hours. And I remember not being able to sleep. You know, everybody sort of, you know, on on the plane, of course, sleeping all around you. But it was just, I, I was coming upon 40 hours and realizing my body could not shut down and rest. Days and days and days have gone by and I am barely sleeping. I mean, living off very, very few hours of sleep. My mind became loud and it became restless. I literally, in my head, felt like I was going crazy. I was, it was right before school was going to start and um, I was in a in a basement apartment sort of sleeping on this green futon my mind would not shut down, just crying and crying and crying for hours with no explanation because circumstantially there was nothing happening in my in my life. And I was really, really scared. And so what I learned after, and this is really um, about what bipolar disorder is, which is extreme highs and lows. And we all have highs and lows, but um, you know, this illness in particular is about the depths of those highs and the depths of those lows and how scary both of those places can be. So before this not sleeping, sort of crying all the time, mind racing, that period preceding it was probably about four months before I was just on fire. I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, never particularly a great student, but I was like, had, you know, full load was, you know, crushing it, acing classes. I started running six miles a day. I was going out seven nights a week. I'd lost a ton of weight. I just wasn't hungry, I guess. And so it was really like top of my game. 
you were almost like had an adrenaline high that was carrying you through. Yes, which I did not know at the time was the chemistry in my brain. I just thought everything is awesome. Like I am on fire. Everything is awesome. So I literally was. My brain was on fire. And what happened with the the travel and the circadian rhythm was that was the moment when I crashed. And then it went into the opposite end of that spectrum, which was not high. It was um, extraordinary low and scary and dark. So I was lucky enough to have my mom and my dad take it really seriously and come out to Boulder. We picked a doctor literally out of the yellow pages, like literally just randomly um, found a doctor who I believe changed, changed my life. And I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So I think that if I called my parents from college and said, like, I can't sleep and my thoughts are racing, they would say, try warm milk or something. Um, Was there a reason that your parents, you think, took it seriously? Like, is there any family history? My parents had enough background and context when I said, I'm not sleeping. I'm crying for hours a day and my weight just continued to drop and drop that there was something wrong. So they came and they found you sort of in pieces. And what happened next? So my mom and dad came to Boulder and we ended up in the office of Dr. Wood, who would become my doctor. And what I remember so distinctly about that appointment was that he had a fountain in his office, like a water fountain. And he was asking me about how I was experiencing the fountain. And like the noise of the fountain? The noise of the fountain. And, you know, he asked me, we'd been talking for, you know, let's say 10 minutes before, and the fountain was so loud and heightened to me that it was like I almost couldn't concentrate it where everybody else was sort of sitting there having... And so, you know, I think it was one of the the reasons the fountain is in there because it would have been sort of ambient and gone away. But for wherever my brain was at that moment, everything was so heightened. When I went in for the doctor's appointment, I think like any doctor's appointment, there's a series of questions. And a lot of it is what you would expect. Family history, check. Not sleeping or eating, but boundless energy check. Grandiose thinking, check. Rapid speech, check. Weight loss, check. Followed by depression, check. And then hearing them interview my parents, what they had observed outside as me, as both a young child and um, a teenager growing up, and sort of signs all along the way, as little as a five-year-old girl saying, my mind won't shut off, my mind won't shut off, and being able to articulate it at that age. So I think it became clear very quickly what the diagnosis was. So can you describe the days and weeks that followed? So you're, you're sitting in that doctor's office, the fountain is loud. You're being told that actually what's wrong is in your mind. What happens next? So I was getting ready to go back to school fall semester. So I signed up for all my classes like three or four weeks and realized I 
was not functioning and there was no way in hell that I was going to be able to be in classes and participate and learn. So pulled out of my classes, started working with a psychiatrist once a week, a psychologist twice a week. So I go literally from being this, like acing it, life of the party, (laughs) to dropping out of 90% of my classes and like retreating. And that's the polarity there. But I remember being in a hotel with my parents who had flown out, sort of one of the heightened episodes. And my mom putting me in a Victorian bath. And I was crying so hard that I literally could not breathe. I could not catch my breath. So she sort of drew me this bath and washcloth on my back. To think of being in that much emotional pain where you cannot breathe and your mom is giving you a bath at 19 years old and there's nothing, nothing in your life circumstantially that is going wrong. And so it's it's tricky in that way without question. I was 19 and I was told you have a mental illness, you're mentally ill and we're going to put you on medication and you will most likely be on that medication your entire life. And you thought I'm fucked. <laughs> yeah, and at at the time as I said in my head I I I felt like I was losing control. I I was was living in a place that was so uncomfortable and so scary. I just wanted to crawl out of my own body and I didn't understand if there was an end to that. You know, so and I think it was an identity piece too because as he would explain characteristics like you know, people who have bipolar disorder have a tendency to be very gregarious or very social or creative and I'm like what, what, like, I have a long list of insecurities, you know, like at probably every college girl, but he's taking some of the attributes that I actually like about myself. And is that me or is that a mental illness? Is right. that messed up chemistry? So like identifying what was me and what was this disease that I had in my brain. At what point did you decide that you would keep this a secret and why? I don't remember consciously making a choice. I think in my head, it was, in my head, dirty is the word. Like it was, mm. it was flawed and dirty and wrong and embarrassing and I'm mentally ill and how, how can this happen? So it didn't, it felt too scary to put that out there and have no control of how other people would experience it or conceive it or what people would think about me or say about me. So I just decided that it was safer to keep it secret. So what did you tell your friends at school? My roommate knew and then um, one or two other friends and then everything else was just nothing. So what is bipolar disorder? Bipolar disorder is a chemical imbalance in the brain and it presents itself very differently, but it's basically extreme highs and lows. And for some, those highs are dangerously high and the lows are dangerously low. And for some, it's much less so. I think I probably fall somewhere in the middle. And what a high can look like is, um, it's weird because it's almost 
beautiful and exciting in a sense. Everything is heightened around you. So you have more energy, more confidence, more ideas, more creativity. Some people, it's risky behavior. They're overspending, their heightened sexuality or sex drive. There's So everything is, is kind of heightened. And that is how I would describe a, a manic. It is unquiet and relentless and there is no rest at all for your mind. And you can be highly productive very efficient and it's exhausting and taxing and riddled with restlessness and your low is sort of as high as your high and you know that it's coming once you realize so that's the other thing is the anticipation of wow I realize I'm in this space and I know what's coming but I don't know when it's going to come and a low is a depression it's it's being swallowed by a black cloud it's a lot of crying, a lot of crying, you know, in your car for no reason, pulling over, um, just feeling this emotional weight. And I think it's important to distinguish chemical depression versus circumstantial depression because I have layered a lot of shame when I've been depressed on that because I think, how can I be depressed? Right. What's listen to the stories I'm sharing? Like, look what these people are, look what people are going through, look what people I love are going through. I have three healthy kids and a great husband and I feel broken inside and I, it makes no sense. But it is a darkness that feels like um, you cannot escape it. And it also, when it's happening, it feels very permanent. So you're waking up in emotional pain. I know when it's been really bad for me, I wake up and immediately it's like, can I do, like, can I? Because you know what you're going to feel all day. Like, you know the weight of what you're going to feel. And that in my case, I'm not willing to show that. Like, I am going to put on a brave face and do and and keep all of that private. And then at night, like almost looking at the clock and being like, when can I go to bed? Because I can just sleep and not have to feel this way. What's the path out? Of depression? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, self-care. It's, that is when it's really important, you know, just to turn to all the knowledge you've learned along the way. So, you know, whether it's being out in nature or talking to a therapist or going to bed and getting up at the same time every morning, getting sunlight, adjusting your medications, you know, all of those things that that get people out of a depression. And we haven't talked about your kids and how having children impacted or how having bipolar impacted your experience in terms of having children. Did it? It impacted my pregnancies greatly. And that's really right. Your your beginning of your relationship with your your children. So in all of those pregnancies, I had to go off medication, which is terrifying to be pregnant and not on medication. There was, um, because that was my baseline, right? That was my safety. And I didn't know if I would go back to a 19-year-old self while pregnant. 
but there was a risk of cleft palate and all these things because of the medications that I'm on. And then going off, it was the opposite that I had to quickly go back on the medications because my risk of postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis was so high because I had had severe depressive episodes before. I think the other way, if I'm being honest, that it has impacted um, my kids. This one may like make me cry a little bit, but during some of those phases where the productivity and the go, 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 I, I was doing a million things and a million projects and traveling all over and not, and that is the cost to me being available and me being present to them. So that is something that I've gotten a lot better at. And it goes, I'm so much more aware of of, of that. And I think I, I'm way more protective of my time and, and, and presence. But there was a time that that I think was costly and it was, I think, somehow tied to my mental health. So is there anything good about having bipolar? Yeah, I think there is. Tell me about that. Um, it's a lot of what we touched on. Um, I think I have experienced the world very deeply and there is beauty in that in both the highs and the lows. I mean, I talk about that trip from Africa and now I know that I was manic on that trip, but I wonder if my experience of senses of everything, of the landscape, the sounds, everything was so heightened that that that, that experience was even more heightened for me than it was for my sister, my mom. Certainly, I don't think I'd be able to do some of the things that I've done professionally that that I'm grateful to have have been a part of or played a part in with without that piece of me. So yeah, I think I think there's parts that serve you. And has spirituality played any role in your journey? Without question. And I at 19, I didn't have a clear sense of my faith, but I I do now. And I do not believe that God, I do not believe that God makes mistakes. And therefore, I am not a mistake, nor is this piece of me. So meditation, which is very LA, very, very (laughs) LA, New York, San Francisco. Um, So I'm learning to meditate, put that under the bucket, I guess, more spiritual. Um, And that really helps quieting the mind. So that's, that's been a great practice. And nature's huge for me. If you had a wand, would you take the diagnosis away? No. I, I, um, I would take the shame and secrecy away. I would take all the stories I've told myself about it away. But I don't know what my life would look like without it. And I have um, a husband I love deeply. I have three healthy, happy kids that I love deeply. I like um, my life. I like the person I'm becoming and the path I'm on. So yeah, there's there's difficult times and there are for all of us. Um, and some of mine in the past have been scary and extreme, but but no, I wouldn't I wouldn't take it back. So you have been keeping this a secret for 20 plus years. Correct. What have been the consequences of secrecy? That's a great question, Holly. I think secrets are really heavy to bear. And I also think you lose the ability. You were the one who first said to me, warts and all. I It was years ago. But for people to really love you, warts and all, and to know that um, 
you know, to have that fear that somehow you're less worthy of a friendship or relationship or a job. Um, you can't expose this part because it'll change the relationship. So I think shame and secrecy are are really weighty and heavy. And if you're already dealing with mental illness and managing that or just the stuff of life, to layer on shame and secrecy is a shame. And you were afraid to do this interview. In fact, you've thought about doing it in the past. You've thought about sharing this in the past and you haven't. Why? I have thought about it many times. And when I was at ABC, I wanted to write an article. Um, We had great relationships with magazines and what it means to be 27 with bipolar. I had it all mapped out and lots of ideas that I never did because I was afraid of what people would think. So I think now, um, I, I think there's more discussion about anxiety and depression and that being acceptable. But I look around and you've got people killing themselves. You have amazing contributors to society and life, you know, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. And we have a dear friend here who was a father of two great kids and a great wife. who We lost to suicide. And I think the rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide in teens has never been higher. So to me, it's kind of like take an illness, cancer, insert something else and say, okay, we're going to work for a cure and work for treatments and work for support. But here's the collective agreement. Our unspoken agreement is if you have it, don't talk about it because you need to be ashamed. So how can you create any change without just talking about it, right? So, and with this podcast, you're asking people to share their vulnerabilities. So how does that play in to your decision now? That's without question. Um, the, um, the, The main reason, and I'll share a story with you. I was asked to be on a podcast and it's called Inner Space, and it was on emotional well-being. They're like, you're talking to a lot of people who've been through extraordinary things. You know, you're a journalist. We'd love to talk to you. Great. So they send over the bullets of what we're going to talk about. And the last question is, do you or anyone you know have been touched by mental illness? And I think to myself, like, you freaking kidding me? I am asking all these people to share their truth, to share their vulnerabilities, to talk about really real hard stuff of life. And I'm going to go and lie or hide or whatever you want to call it. Not share mine. Not share mine. Thank you. So for me, this is the right time and the right platform. But you have shared this with some other people in the past, carefully chosen. And what has been the experience of that? The best one was with Graham. I think it was about a year in and I was terrified. And I remember being really nervous and like my hands were shaking. I was crying and I thought, well, he knows I'm mentally ill. You know, I don't know, maybe, maybe he'll go away. And so I tell him and I work up the court (laughs) and his answer was, you're way less crazy than my last girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) So that's reassuring. (laughs) So um, he's a keeper. He's I'm like, okay. Uh, he still says that. Um, so that's the interesting thing that that I had supportive parents. Um, I had a, a boyfriend at 20 who got it and loved me in spite of it. Um, you know, 
my roommate, um, Sarah. And so, so that's interesting that, that, and it's kind of sad that that love and acceptance wasn't more powerful than the fear I had of judgment. Do you think you've been really good at keeping this secret? Not today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not at this moment. Yeah, I do. I think I've, I've, I have kept a secret from people I love deeply, deeply, deeply people. I love madly. And that's sad to think about. One of the things you taught me is that with bipolar, you're always, you're, you're, you're frequently checking your medications. Can you tell me about that? Sort of adjusting. Different than, you know, a lot of people talk about antidepressants and so mood stabilizers, right? Because it's about stabilizing the mood. So for me, mood stabilizers and anti-anxiety are baseline because anxiety is just something I struggle with every day. And otherwise, if it's too high or too low, you have to assess what you need to rebalance the chemistry of your brain. And have you ever experienced any hallucinations or delusions about things? No. Feelings of loss, guilt. Yeah. I mean, I feel guilty for the people I love just talking about it. I feel guilt that I have darkness um, and, and, and pain in spite of all of this good surrounding me. I have a weird guilt about that, of having this really blessed, beautiful life and that my inner self isn't in alignment with that. Mm. Feel, feels guilty. Yeah, and, it, and, and the shamefulness of a label of mental illness and mentally ill, what, you know, what does that say about me? So what's your day-to-day like when it comes to managing it? When, it, when I'm doing it well, and I'm not always doing it well, I'm focusing on sleep, um, making sure I exercise and move my body. Um, I am very consistent with medication. That science piece is my baseline. I will see a psychiatrist, you know, every month or every other month, depending on how things are going. And I think personally, I'm a very tenacious person. I don't give up easily. And so I will uncover like any stone to, I've done it all, like acupuncture, brain training. I mean, I have tried everything. So I will make sure every tool available is in the toolbox. Do the medications you take have any side effects? I guess all medications have side effects, like those commercials where... (laughs) This medication, <laughs> you may have acne, you may die, you may. Right, your leg may twitch uncontrollably. <laughs> yes, medications have side effects. There's medications that I have been on in the past with short term memory loss and memory loss. And that is a crazy thing to, you know, however old you are, 31 years old, two days later, talk to somebody and saying, that meeting was amazing, you know, best brainstorming session ever. We've got to go back and have lunch there. And I literally have no idea what you're referencing. And they're saying that what you said was amazing. Yes. So what do you do? You just, you like nod and then freak out in your head. The one, oddly enough, I mean, there's been ones I've been on in the past where you gain weight or, you know, just kind of 
I think, common side effects. And I, I may have to do some sort of like reel of it because it's it's f- funny and not funny, is that I have this, um, it's kind of a slurred speech. Like I, I will try and say a word and I'll say it wrong. So I'll be like, in the actually Steve Gleason's episode, it's New Orleans. And I say, I, I just, I can't do it right. I basically have this lisp. Like I trip over a word and it sounds like a lisp. And I, no one's ever said anything to me about it, but I, um, I was aware of it. And then I talked to a doctor about it and she said it's a side effect from one of the medications and it's one that she nor I are willing for me not to, to be on. But in recording this podcast and hearing myself, I mean, I could make like a whole clip reel out of me and my list. I think you should. <laughs> it's actually really funny that you've decided to have a voice, a career that's about your voice. And yet that's actually one of the side effects from your medication. Yeah. Well, all those things, right? Like developing like slurred speech or memory loss, then you just, you know, yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot to manage. Would you give up the highs if you didn't have to feel the lows? I mean, the best way I can answer that is um, I don't know what my life would look like without this. And so it's hard, but I, I'm grateful for the opportunities I've had. I'm grateful for, and one thing has led to another. I mean, the reason I'm here we have this enduring friendship is because I was flying back and forth to New York at a job that was fueled by a lot of mania at that time. So yeah, I don't, it's hard, it's hard for me to separate any of it. How have you experienced it watching me? Like, what does it look like to you? I know what it looks like in my head, but what does it look like to you? It's like, um, it's like you're like a whirling dervish. You exude this otherworldly confidence and you have deep creativity that is sort of magical, I would say, which sounds crazy, but you you just have this combination of drive, confidence, creativity, positivity, and and yet now I've known you through net two cycles that I now know were cycles. But when you know your friend's drive is balanced out by almost, um, you become reclusive. You become hard to reach. You become distant. And as a friend, that can be confusing because you're so gregarious and warm and wonderful. And then suddenly you're not. Um, and so I, I think when you were building Gleason, I could see you and, and you're always fueled by a sense of purpose and a genuine love. And like, as we all are a fear of failure, because we all fear failure, but you imagined greatness and then you go for that greatness. Thank you. You know, there are going to be people here who are listening to what you're saying and, uh, have a friend or a family member who, number one, someone who has bipolar and wants to tell someone, is there advice that you have for both the person who decides to share that truth and for the person uh, who might receive it? Share yourself with people who've earned the right, earned the right to, to 
have that piece of you or have hold your secret or hold that space. So I would say it would be really looking around to who that person is in your life and sharing with them in, in a thoughtful way that feels right for you and have that be your starting place. And do you think there's a right reaction? Um, no, I don't. I don't. I mean, I think your reaction is whatever your authentic reaction is. And, um, you know, my guess is that there is a wide spectrum of people who think, oh, that's no big deal. Everyone in my family has, you know, X, Y, Z. And I think there's probably a lot of people where something like bipolar still seems kind of big and scary. Um, So I guess it's just being honest about, you know, your own curiosity. So what would you tell your 19-year-old self on the day that you were diagnosed, sitting there panicked and petrified and so uncertain about your future? I would say that this illness will not define you. Your family will define you, your friends, your faith, your work in the world. So this is not something that will define you. And I would say, um, take it seriously. Get all the tools you can to take care of yourself. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. And what do you hope people take away from this conversation? It's funny, Holly, because as I'm having this conversation, it's so weird because this has always felt so big in my head and saying it out loud, it's feeling like, like maybe it's not that big of a deal. Are people going to be like, <laughs> well, yeah. You are making a mountain out of a molehill. Okay? We, we all have ups and downs. Uh, so I guess that's a good thing. I think what I hope people get out of it is maybe a new understanding of of what it looks like to live with mental illness, a new understanding of what it means to be bipolar. Hopefully somebody who has their own struggle that they live with and shame and secrecy, you know, maybe finds the courage to share it with somebody. Um, So yeah, I hope um, that's what I hope people get out of it. Do you think bipolar played a part in starting All the Wiser? Yes, I do. I think I have an empathy for pain. Um, I think I have an empathy for uncertainty on what it means to sort of live in live in a dark, scary place or experience. I, I think without question, I, I'm interested in people's shared experience and how they've navigated their own life um, when it is really, really hard, regardless of what that circumstance is. And I feel like all of those jobs that you had helping other people share their story has led you to this place where that's what you're now doing full-time. Yeah, I am. And I'm doing it on my own terms. And I'm not working at a network and broadcasting things to millions of people. But I am interviewing really incredible people and playing, having the privilege of playing a part and sharing their stories and and building my own little audience and and it, and it feels really good. And when you think about people listening to the interviews that you do, what it, what do you hope that they get out of them? I I hope they learn something new um about the world or about themselves. Um a lot of people say, you know, gosh, what they're going through, I shouldn't, you know, 
I should be grateful or, and I don't think that's the point. And I don't think that's what the interviewees and the people, I, I think suffering is a shared human experience, regardless of what your suffering is. And I think having real, raw, honest conversations, you can feel more connected um, to people. And so I hope um, people learn something new. I hope they feel more connected. I hope they get takeaway from the the gifts that that these people have on the other end of their circumstances and that wisdom is passed along hence all the wiser so yeah that's what my hope is and we've talked a lot you and me about success what success is has that definition changed for you over time yes i think success is some wise smart person said it but i don't know who to quote is the entirety of your life and so going from 30,000 miles above and looking down. So, you know, if you're crushing it at work, but the cost is your personal relationships are a mess and non-existent, then you're, are you really successful? Um, and back to my early days, I was so driven and so hardworking and wanted to achieve, achieve, do better, do better, accolades, accolades. And now I don't, I don't function that way. I fully get that if that is at the cost of the people I love most and time with them, then I am in fact not living a successful life. So I hope for you that what you feel is a huge lightness. Um, and I also do think it's a wonderful gift to give both to your listeners and to understand the authenticity of, of why you do the work you do. Thank you. So now I'm going to pretend to be you again and do your rapid fire. No. Okay. Okay. But right. I'll do it. I'll make it in a question. Okay. All right. So Kimmy Culp, what's your favorite food? Dark chocolate. Mm. What's your favorite time of day? Sunset um, because it's beautiful and it's a appropriate time to pour a glass of wine. What's your favorite TV show or movie? There's so much good stuff on TV right now. I love The Crown, love Narcos, Big Little Lies, Goodfellas is my all-time favorite movie, and every Christmas I like to watch Love Actually. Oh, that's so nice. Mm -hmm. Favorite curse word? I like to say douchebag. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> For some reason, I only say it to men, like Graham's friends or our guy friends, like, don't be such a douchebag. Um, I also it's like probably not very PC. It's probably not very PC. And I also like to say shit balls, but I don't know what it means. I just like how it sounds. So <laughs> douchebag and shit balls. Favorite pastime? I've become pretty sacred about family dinners and quiet nights during the week and really protective of that time. So I think that's when I'm at my happiest. And if I'm by myself, it's it has to do with nature. Okay. First thing you think of in the morning. Which child is going to take the longest to get out of bed? Favorite place in the world? Coast of North Carolina. Now I want to go back to Africa when I turn 50. Thing you want to do before you die? Raise great kids who really like me. Greatest words of wisdom. Go confidently in the direction of your dreams. Live the life you imagined.
I hope everyone who's listened to this has liked, followed, and wildly rated your podcast. But in case they haven't yet and they want to follow you other places, where can they find you, Kimmy? They can find me at uh, Instagram and Facebook at All The Wiser Podcast, on Twitter at All The Wiser Pod. And I do want to take Kimmy's job of saying like, share, and review the podcast because every time there's a new review and a new rating, it lifts the podcast for other people to find. It makes it more discoverable. So there's a real benefit of liking this one and sharing it. Thanks, babe. Thank you. All right. We did it. Yay. Today's interview supports crisistextline.org, and I am obsessed with these guys. I was really lucky and blessed to have two awesome parents who took my crisis seriously and quickly got me the help and resources that I needed. I think every person in the world should have that same gift. Somebody within reach when you are at your lowest of low to help you navigate through that dark and scary space. As you all know, we are, unfortunately, never too far from our phones. But this is the genius of Crisis Text Line. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, there is somebody a text away. They have trained thousands of volunteers to become crisis counselors, basically learning things like empathetic listening, building rapport and trust, exploring the issues, and establishing a goal and the resources so the texter can come up with a plan to stay safe and be healthy. And there is no such thing as a small crisis. They deal with everything from loneliness to depression, anxiety, self-harm, emotional abuse, and suicide, always just a text away. To date, they have helped over 109 million people in their darkest of moments. You can learn more about their work at crisistextline.org and the number to have in your phone, if you ever need to reach out, is 741741. I can't end this episode without giving a huge thanks to Holly Gordon. Holly, thank you for making the time to do this interview and thank you for being a wonderful friend. I'm going to include some links about Holly in the show notes because she really is doing epic things in the world and I want you to know about them. Finally, if you like today's interview, I hope you'll consider sharing it with someone you know. In particular, anyone in your life who may be touched by mental illness. Today marks our 10th episode and $20,000 to charities around the world. You guys are awesome and it's a privilege to be on this journey with you. Have a great day. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.